now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down deep into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. And you will overflow with thankfulness. Good morning. It's good to see all of you today, and I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now online or in the chapel, the warehouse, or uh, one of the campuses. I want to especially uh, welcome those of you from the West Campus. Uh, next weekend is your 10th anniversary, and uh, you got a big celebration. you got a brand new building that you guys are in right now, uh, totally refurbished, remodeled, and uh, we're excited for you. And uh, so next week, bring, bring a friend. Big party. I might even pop in. Who knows? You never can tell. Uh, well, we're glad, we're glad you're here. We're starting a new series today, um, uh, studying through the book of Colossians. Now, before we get started, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been embarrassed by the behavior or actions of another believer? who didn't really, their outer appearance didn't really remind you much of Jesus. Now, don't point, okay, right now, but any of you ever been embarrassed in a situation like that? I remember before, uh, before I came to Seacoast, I, uh, I was working at Hewlett Packard Company in, uh, in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had a, uh, I had a guy uh, who worked with me there, uh, who had uh, serious personal hygiene issues. Uh, he was very socially awkward, in incredibly obnoxious, and very vocal in his witness for Jesus. And uh, he happened to go to my church. And uh, I remember one day one of my coworkers, who was not a Christ follower by any means, uh, says to me, he says, you know, th this guy, and he called him by name. He said, he told me he goes to the same church you do. I was like, I wanted to lie, you know, say, no, I've not seen that guy before. I, you know, he's crazy, and I don't know what the deal is with him, you know. His outer appearance didn't match the inner Jesus. Or maybe, you know, maybe you've been driving along in a car, and, and you see a bumper sticker, you know, and it has one of those fish signs on it, you know, that represents Jesus or the church or Christians or whatever, and, and then that, in just a minute, that guy cuts you off in traffic, and, and then they give you the international sign that says, I love you. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen that happen? That's why we don't do Seacoast bumper stickers very much anymore, you know, because sometimes the outer appearance doesn't match the inner Jesus. Uh, I remember about three years ago, uh, there was this church from Kansas that came and picketed right outside our, uh, remember that? You remember that? It's that church that did the, oh, they picketed funerals and all that. I think we've got some pictures. They picketed funerals and all that kind of stuff of servicemen and just obnoxious. And they're out here with the picketing with these signs. So what we did is we just served them water, you know, and good stuff. And I was out taking pictures and greeting them a little bit. And I saw this one little guy had a sign that said, you eat your children. And I thought, you know, I thought, um, 
I, I've been here 25 years, and I've seen some pretty incredible behavior by a few seacoasters, but I have never seen anybody eat their children. It's just <laughs> not something that, that I've seen, you know. It was embarrassing. Sometimes on television, there'll be an event, you know, in a city or a disaster or whatever, and they'll always try to get, you know, the Christian voice, and sometimes, you know, you go, where did they get that girl? You know, I mean, where, that doesn't represent me because the outer appearance doesn't reflect the inner Jesus. And, and I think, you know, you ever heard, you know, you know the verse that says we shouldn't hide our light under a bushel? Some of them should consider doing that, you know, I mean, <laughs> seriously, or at least, you know, hitting the dimmer switch on it or whatever. It's sad because the truth is, They've missed the whole purpose of the gospel. The gospel is found in John 3, 16 and 17. A lot of you know the verse. In fact, why don't we read it out loud? It's, it's, in the, it's on your outline sheet. And it says this, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to be its judge, but to be its savior. Say, God loved the world so much, a world that was separated from him because of their own choice. And he he could have just written us off, but he doesn't. He loves the world so much that he gave his son, Jesus, to die for me. So that if I would just accept his death on my behalf, and I would just say, you know, I'm a sinner. That's easy for me to say. It's probably easy for you to say. And, uh, and, but my sin separates me from a holy God. And Jesus came so that I could have relationship with God. And he came, he came to be my sacrifice. But not only that, he came to be an example. We're studying Colossians. And Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says this. Christ is the visible likeness of the uh, invisible God. You ever heard somebody say, you know, I just can't get my head around God. You know, I, I, I can't understand why God does this or how God would interact in this particular situation. I just can't seem to figure him out. And while God is much larger than, you know, our ability to figure out, Jesus came as a picture of who God is. He's the visible representation of an invisible God. You want to know how, who God is and how God reacts? You go to, go to the New Testament and read in the Gospels the story of Jesus because he is God. And he was representative of how God interacts with people, how God interacts with people when he's frustrated, uh, when people are uh, unlovely, in all kinds of different situations. If you want to know how God is, you take a look at Jesus because he is the visible. He's flesh and blood on a, a picture of God. But here's what's interesting is that when Jesus ascended into heaven after, uh, after he rose from the dead, he left the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, is, is inside of each one of us, and, and collectively we're the church. And the church is to be the visible representation of who God is. People want to know what God is like, how he responds, how he interacts with difficult people, who, who God really is. They should be able to look at the church and go, okay, that's a picture of people who have been transformed 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is that, is that sometimes we kind of get in the, in the way of that. Uh, and the truth is, as embarrassed as I've been about other people and how they represent Jesus, I've also been embarrassed about how little the guy I look at in the mirror looks like Jesus some days. Can you relate to that? Not, not how I look, okay? <laughs> no, how, how you look, okay? It's easy to point a finger, but the truth is we're all that way at times. And so for the next four weeks, well, actually it's going to be five weeks. It was going to be four, and somebody wrote me a note and said, how can you go deeper in four weeks? So we're going to do five, okay? <laughs> Easier to do four because Colossians has four chapters. You do one each week, but we'll stretch it out a little bit. And we're, we're going to study kind of verse by verse through the book of Colossians and see if we can go deeper. And the central verse for the entire book is found in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. I want you to read that out loud. It's in your outline sheet or if you have a Bible or on the screen, you can kind of follow along. It says this, since you have accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, in the campuses read together, live in union with him. Keep your roots deep in him, build your lives on him, and become stronger in your faith as you were taught, and be filled with thanksgiving. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you're going to be spiritually healthy, you've got to have deep roots. Now those of you who have been around a while and you kind of know me and you know how I'm wired up, when I read scripture, uh, I'm... It's just, I'm, I'm kind of an evangelist. It's how God's wired me up. I want everybody involved, you know. When I read scripture, I default to not so much how we can get our roots deep, but how we can get our branches further. You know, I mean, that's, that's why, you know, I went to China a couple of weeks ago and kind of b- b- because of a passion that there ought to be a life-giving church in every community. And so I just want to stretch it out, stretch it out, and stretch it out. And so I read scripture in light of that. But the truth is, if our branches overreach the depth of our roots, it's an unhealthy tree. And it's easily toppled. People who study those things say the health of a tree is largely determined by the depths of its roots. In fact, a healthy tree usually has roots that go three times the distance or the size of the branches. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to dig deeper, each one of us personally, into God's plan uh, for, for us as a church and also individually. Now, this week I want to study just the first eight verses of uh, Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read them and then we'll go into a little background history because you need to know, you know, uh, what's the context of this. And then, uh, and then we're going to make three applications from the scriptures to go in deeper in, in our own life. So let me read. From Paul, who by God's will is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and from our brother Timothy, to God's people in Colossae who are our faithful friends in union with Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all God's people. When the true message, the good news, first came to you, you heard about the hope that it offers. 
So your faith and love are based on what you hope for, which is kept safe for you in heaven. The gospel keeps bringing blessing and is spreading throughout the world, just as it has among you ever since the first or the day you first heard about the grace of God and came to know it as it really is. You learned of God's grace from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is Christ's faithful worker on our behalf. He told us of the love that the Spirit has given you. Okay, so let's, let's do a little background study. I like doing this. I'm one of probably about three people in this whole church that just really digs church history, and I do. I'm, I'm boring as a box of rocks in person. Okay, I just am. I like to read Wikipedia and all. That's what I do for fun. Okay, and so, but what I want to do is every, every story has a context, right? I mean, every letter that's written that you wrote a letter, you don't do that anymore. Uh, you sent an email, okay? There was a context to that. There was a context to this letter. It's just helpful to know, do you have to know this stuff in order to go deeper? No, not necessarily. But it's just helpful helpful to know what was the context. Uh, Colossians is a letter, and it's written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul uh, is a missionary, and it's written to a church in a city called Colossae, um, which is in Turkey, current-day Turkey. And it was started, this church, it's a house church. It was started by a guy named Epaphras. Actually, his name was Epaphroditus. But he shortened it to Epaphras because Epaphroditus didn't sound like a real man's name. It was something his mother named him when he was smaller. you got to be careful about how you name your kids because they deal with it in school as they, as they get older. And so he... Is this all true? I don't know. It's just common sense. I know his name was Epaphroditus, and he shortened it to Epaphras, and I figured that was probably the reason. Um, I wouldn't want to have that name, you know. I'd just call myself E if I was him. But anyway, so, so Paul is a missionary. He takes several missionary journeys, but he's never been to Colossae. Colossae isn't a big city. It's a smaller city. He's never been there. What he, what he did do on one of his missionary journeys is he went to Ephesus, which is a coastal city not far, far from Colossae. Uh, Ephesus, we studied the book of Ephesians. We talked about it a little bit. Ephesus is in western Turkey. It used to be on the coast. It's not anymore coast moved, but it's kind of like Charleston, okay? It's kind of, it, it was the cultural center of the area, the vacation center, if you want to call it vacation, the entertainment center, the trade center of the region. If you want to have a good time or if you want to do business, you go to Ephesus. And so what Paul did, Paul wanted to evangelize all of what was called Asia Minor. And we'll just think of it as South Carolina, okay? So he wants to evangelize all of South Carolina. And uh, instead of going to all the cities, he just locates in Ephes uh, Ephesus, figuring everybody's going to come through it sometime come down to Ephesus. And so he uh, rents a hall from noon to three. Why from noon to three? Because it's a siesta culture. I wish we were a siesta culture. Are there days that you wish at noon you could just knock off for about three hours, lay down and rest? Okay, that's what they did because it was hot. Well, during those three hours, Paul then would just preach and he'd talk about that. Uh, he'd argue that Jesus was the Messiah 
that the Jewish people were looking for. And then when they'd get irritated at him, he would argue from a different point of view to Gentiles. And apparently one day, Epaphras, E, apparently comes to Ephesus. He lives in Colossae, small town, about 100 miles inland. Not a lot happening there, kind of like Columbia. Okay, it's just it's kind of 100 miles, not a lot going on. And uh, <laughs> we love you, though, there in Columbia. Um, so he comes to Ephesus maybe for some good food, you know. He wants some seafood, you know, or maybe to do business, hit the beach, catch a show. And he runs into Paul's traveling preaching show. And he, when he does, he has an encounter with Christ that transforms his life. Now, Epaphras is the first guy in his hometown of Colossae to become a Christ follower. Seems kind of random, but it's not. It's strategic on God's part. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you would say that you're like the first or one of the first Christ followers in your family or maybe in your uh, business or team or school or kind of your social group, how many of you would say, yeah, I kind of relate. I'm, I was one of the first ones in my family. Okay, whatever. Okay. All right. Several people. You know, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of awkward sometimes when you're the only one in your family or first one in your family and God changes you from the inside out. But it's very, very strategic. And let me tell you why. Because it's not just for you. God wants to do the same thing through you that he wanted to do through Epaphras. He wants to bless your social circle. That's why, that's why he, he chose you. You, were, you seem more open, and, but, but it's not just about you. He wants to bless people through you. In fact, in verse 6 of Colossians 1, it says this, The gospel keeps bringing blessings, and it is spreading throughout the whole world, just as it was among you the first day you, you heard about the grace of God and came to know it as a, as a reality. And so God wants to bless your city. He wants to bless the social group that you're a part of, and he does it by transforming individuals. But here's the problem. As we said in the beginning, oftentimes individuals are um, a poor reflection of Jesus a poor reflection of who God is, and therefore the gospel doesn't have maximum blessing as he wants it to have. So my question for today from the study that we're going to do is what does a good reflection of Jesus look like? What happens to you? In fact, three things in this scripture happens to you when you are changed as Epaphras was by God's grace. Three things. When you're changed by God's grace, the first thing that happens as you begin to see your circumstances differently through eyes of faith. You see your circumstances differently through eyes of faith. Look at verse 3. He says, We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith. Circle the word heard. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He says, you know, it's a joy to pray for you. We always give thanks. We pray for you because your reputation goes, man, all the way down in Ephesus, we heard about your faith. I thought about that. 
I thought if, if Paul was writing about Seacoast, or if he was writing about Greg Surratt, what would he write? We say, you know what? <clears throat> I thank God for every time I get to pray for you. It's just such a privilege. Or would he say, you know what, God, I got to love that guy by faith. <laughs> no, I'm supposed to love everybody. It's just not natural. He's a hard one to love, but I'm going to pray for him. We say that about Seacoast. We say, man, man, I just, we hear everywhere about their grumbling and complaining. Or would he say, we hear about their faith, and it's just incredible. See, um, <laughs> I was prepared for this. This is one of those weeks when uh, this happens to me a lot. I'm prepared for, I need what I'm preaching about. So, so this week, get back from China, and it's kind of condensed, and you, you know how it is. And had a week of vacation before that, so you're coming back into everything. And then there were a lot of circumstances that happened this week in our own family that were, um, ended up good, but it was a challenge. And so I'm in the office one day, and my assistant Kathy is kind of going over my schedule, and she says, uh, she says, you're speaking at a conference in a couple of weeks, and they have an email here. They want the title of what you're going to be speaking about so that they can put it in their, their deal, and hopefully somebody will want to come listen to it. And uh, well, I said, well, I don't even know what I'm going to speak about. And she said, well, I told them you probably didn't yet. Uh, you would about the night before. But uh, <laughs> they said, we need a title so that we can advertise this thing. And so she and I talked a little bit. And, and she said, well, why don't you talk about this? And I said, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. I think, think the Lord's in that. She said, okay, get a title on it. Call it something. So I'm thinking, oh, man, I get up and I start walking around. And I start getting a headache, you know, thinking about this. And I had two or three words and they wouldn't fit together. And finally, I just slammed my fist down on it. Ooh, I don't need to do that. That's expensive. But anyway, I, it's $100 at least. I, uh, I said, Kathy, I can't do this. I'm terrible at this, at coming up with titles. To which she just kind of quietly said, Really? Who told you that? Kathy. The devil told me that. It wasn't God. I know it was was the devil. She don't need to be, I'm the man of God here. You don't need to be reminded me of that. Who told you that? Now, as soon as I got that perspective that that wasn't the truth, that I wasn't bad at that, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, immediately I got just the catchiest title in the world. Now, I can't remember what it was, but we wrote it down and we <laughs> gave it to him. Okay? All right? So here's faith. Let me define faith. Faith is simply choosing to believe that God is telling the truth. Faith is simply choosing to believe that God is telling the truth. For example, Philippians 4.13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Now, I know that the context of that scripture is Paul saying, you know, I've been very, very wealthy, and I've been very, very poor. I've been all in between, and I expect probably to be both in the future, and I can handle anything because of the strength that God gives me. And I I believe it's not true just of Paul, but it's true of us, and it's true of more than just wealth. It's true of everything. Sometimes I say, I don't know if I can handle this. 
I don't know if I'm equipped for this. I don't know if I can go through this. And, and the truth is, here's what, here's what God says. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Do you believe that? Who are you listening to? You say, well, I can't do it. Well, who are you listening to? How about another one? Philippians 4.19. And with all of his abundant wealth, through Christ Jesus, my God will supply all of your need. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is telling the truth? See, that's faith. God is omnipotent. That's a theological term. Let's go deep here just a minute. Omnipotent means that God possesses infinite, complete, and perfect power. God can do anything he wants to. The first time he really reveals himself in scripture, names are important. I talked about Epaphras' name. I was kidding around about it a little bit. Names really are important, especially when it comes to God. When God introduces himself at times through the Old Testament, he'll use different names for himself, and when he does, it reveals a part of his character and who he is. And the first time he reveals his omnipotence is with Abraham. Do you remember the story of Abraham? Most of us know it. Abraham, um, who had no kids, God came to him, 75 years old, said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. His wife laughed about it. Abraham really didn't know if that would happen, but he believed, okay? But then God made this promise, and there was a gap between the promise being made, promise fulfilled. There always is. There's a whole message in that. But he screwed up during the gap time. Anybody ever screwed up during the gap time? He did, and he tried to fix it on his own, and it messed everything, made, it, made everything worse. And then when he's 99 years old, God knew he needed encouragement, and God was getting ready to perform a miracle for him. And so God came to him and reintroduces himself to Abraham. And we find the scripture where he did that in Genesis 17 and verse 1. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared and said to him, I am the almighty God says, uh, I mean, we've talked before, but let me introduce you who I am. I am El Shaddai. That's the Hebrew words, El Shaddai, the almighty God. And then he says, obey me and always do what is right. El Shaddai, God almighty, a God who can rejuvenate dead wombs, a God who can give babies to couples in their 90s. That's who God says that he is. Do you believe him? See, what do you need? He says, I will supply. God can supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. What do you need? Do you need strength? Feel weak? God will supply it. You need wisdom? You feel like, man, I really need wisdom in this situation. God will supply it if you believe. Do you, do you need resources. He says right here, that's specifically what it's talking about. God will supply them. Do you need comfort? Maybe something has happened in your life that, boy, it's thrown you for a loop, and you just need comfort. God will supply it. Do you need a building? <laughs> you know, some of our campuses, I talked about the West Campus, they refurbished the building. It looks great. Excited to see it with you guys. Some of our campuses, have been looking for a building for months and years and some like cl doors close and you can get discouraged and frustrated in your own uh, life. Maybe you're looking for a house or, you know, in your, in your company, a building or whatever, and you get frustrated. You know what? 
God will supply it at just the right time. He says, I will supply all of your needs through riches in Christ Jesus. So when you're tempted to doubt God's ability and you say, I could never, or God will never, or it can't, can't happen, you need to stop and ask yourself this question. Who told you that? Who told you that? Paul says to the Colossae church, he says, you know, it's a joy to pray for you because I have heard of your faith. Now, uh, let, me, let me give you a second thing that you need to understand and know about reflecting Jesus. People who are changed by God's grace not only uh, have, have faith, but they relate to people differently through a heart of love. They relate to people through a heart of love. Colossians 1 and verse 4, the rest of that verse, he says, For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all, circle all, love for all of God's people. Now, if someone was to ask you, what does a mature Christian look like? Oftentimes our answers are just completely opposite of kind of what the Bible teaches. You know, well, they... they um, they know the scripture real well. Well, we should, but I'm not sure that that's a reflection of maturity. They ought to have a degree, in, uh, an advanced degree, you know, especially if we have pastoral search teams. Every once in a while, I'll tell you one story. A pastoral search team called me several years ago, and they said, uh, you know, we've got a church that needs a pastor here, and big salary, big budget, all this kind of stuff. You wouldn't be interested, would you? And I said, uh, no, I don't really think so. I'm doing real good right here. I feel called by God to Seacoast. Well, do you, is there anybody in your church that has your DNA? You know, maybe on your staff that might be ready. And I said, well, probably so. Give me your qual baseline qualifications for, um, for, you know, what it takes to be a, what you're looking for in a senior pastor. And they said, well, they don't have to have a doctorate, but they need at least an advanced degree in theology. And they went through all this kind of stuff. And I said, time out, time out, time out. We only have, at that point, we, we only had one person on our staff that would meet your qualifications, and they've been in prison. And uh, it wasn't after they became a believer, it was, or before, it was actually after. And I was talking about Vern Jensen, and some of you know his story. And, and I just don't think that's going to float through your uh, search committee. And the uh, guy said, I think you're right. But the point was this. They thought they knew what they wanted, but they had no idea where to look for it. And with maturity, I think it's the same way. Maturity in Christ is not measured by what you know. It's measured by who you love. Okay? He didn't say, Paul didn't say, we've heard of your faith and the fact that you know all of the books of the Bible and can quote the 13th chapter of Corinthians, and have completed the Beth Moore Bible study on the law of love, all six sessions, which are 90 minutes each. Now, all of those things are good, but they aren't necessarily a reflection of going deeper in the Lord. The, 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 the maturity in Christ is not measured by what you know, it's measured by who you love. When somebody's digging deeper into Jesus, they start loving all kinds of people. He says all of God's creation, all of God's people. It's not just the church, it's everybody that God has made. Interesting, going back into early church history just a little bit, when the church began to grow uh, in Rome, there was a great persecution 
the church began to grow incredibly. And uh, those who study it say that uh, basically it was three things that caused it to grow. One was how they responded to persecution. They would martyr these people and they wouldn't deny their faith. And they were just amazed that there must really be God. But there was another, there was another factor too. People lived in cities and epidemics would sweep through cities. And uh, when they would, it would just be devastated. Hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would die. And so normal people in the city would do what normal people, excuse me, normal people do. They would, they would leave. They would go to the country where they wouldn't have, they'd bring their family or whatever, and they wouldn't have to interact with other people. So they'd leave the city and the sick people. Well, everybody did that except for the Christians. Rather than leaving, the, the Christians would come into the city and they would care for and, and uh, love, and actually they built the first hospitals, and people would look at that and go, there must be something about them. They, there's no reason for them to do it. We're tormenting them, and yet they serve and they care and they love. Something else they did, a, a kind of a third factor, was in Roman society, an infant could be abandoned without penalty or social stigma for a lot of reasons, uh, including maybe they, they didn't look, look right. You know, maybe there was a physical... Uh, de- deformity, or they were illegitimate, or the child of infidelity, or family poverty, or conflict in the family, or being one of too many children, especially if they were a female. And uh, their, their parents could uh, take them to the, not everybody did this, but they could take them to a city square or whatever, and they, they would just kind of abandon them there, hoping that a wealthier family would take care of them if they had too many kids, or, or um, that they would just die. And oftentimes what would happen is sex traffickers, you thought that was a brand new thing. It's been going on for forever. Sex traffickers would take these kids and raise them for the sex industry in order to make money off them. It's a terrible thing. And the church said, we're going to do something about this. And so they moved in and they began adopting children who were abandoned by other people. Loving the least of these. And people would look around and they would say, wow, they're, they, they, uh, they, they respond differently to uh, persecution, uh, epidemics. They rush to the problem. And with kids, uh, they're, they're adopting them. They're making a difference. They love everybody. I was in China a few weeks ago, and I was speaking to different groups and, and uh, met a pastor who told me an incredible story. Uh, in China, as most of you know, uh, the government is becoming more and more open to uh, uh, open Christianity, but still it's, it's technically uh, illegal unless the church is registered with the state. For a lot of reasons, a lot of churches aren't and can't get registered with the state. And uh, the, the, the uh, government at times closes them down. And uh, there, there was a guy who, I, I said, how do, you, how do you evangelize? How do you do what you do? in that type of a situation. He said, well, we serve people. He said, I said, give me an example. He said, well, he said, there's a severe blood shortage in China. And he said, honestly, because of the numbers of people, there are a lot of people that are just selfish and they're not going to give blood. So he said, we decided that's something that we could do and stand out. And so he organized uh, blood donation, Christian blood donation days, they became bigger and bigger until now. He's got a na- almost, he's trying to make it a national holiday. Uh, November 25th, 1125, uh, is uh, National Chinese Christian Blood Donation Day. 
where they make a big party of it, and they're donating lots and lots of blood. In fact, the television uh, uh, stations and all that, are. he played me stories that they did of the whole thing. I said, that's interesting. I said, you're, so you're running to a situation that everybody else is running away from. He said, yeah. I said, you're making it a national holiday? He said, yeah, uh, November 25th. I said, why then? He said, well, because there's no other holidays in. They don't have Thanksgiving or anything like that. Christmas is the 25th of December. He said, it, so it's easy to remember 1125. He said, you want to know the truth behind it? And I said, yeah, that'd be kind of nice. He said, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five says, Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. <laughs> I thought that is so cool. But here's what he said. Here's what he said. They, and they, 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 uh, in the earthquakes and those kind of things, they're the first to get to it, and the community loves it. He said, we, while we cannot register our church with the state, we are registered in the heart of the people. I thought, that is so good. If the state wanted to close them down, they couldn't because the people need the church so much. So what if the church wasn't afraid of the darkness, but they were provoked by it? If you're going to go deeper, you're going to have to see through eyes of faith. You're going to have to relate with a heart of love. And you've got to see value in people that others don't see. But let me give you one more. Uh, people who are changed by God's grace, third thing that happens is you see the future differently. You see the future differently. You see it with an attitude of hope. And I love this about the gospel. Look at verse 5. When the true message, the good news, first came to you, you heard about the hope that it offers. So your faith and love are based on what you hope for. Faith and love that we've talked about grow out of hope. It says it's based on what you hope for, which is kept safe in heaven for you. Let's talk about that for a minute. I read an article this week called The Power of Hope, How Hope Can Alter How You View Yourself. It's by Mary Lamia, L-A-M-I-A, who is a PhD. A couple of paragraphs, let me read them, of just a, they're just a small part of what she wrote. She says, hope structures your life in anticipation of the future and influences how you feel in the present. I kind of put a parenthesis in my words. What you think about tomorrow impacts how you feel today. What you think about tomorrow impacts how you feel today. Similar to optimism, hope creates a positive mood about an expectation, a goal, or a future situation. Such mental time travel influences your state of mind and alters your behavior in the present. The positive feelings you experience as you look ahead, imagining hopefully what might happen or what you will attain or who you're going to be, can alter how you currently view yourself. Along with hope comes your prediction that you'll be happy and that this can have behavioral consequences. She goes on and later in the article she says, the way in which a hopeful person handles disappointment differs from those who are not. Even if the present is unpleasant, the thought of a positive future can be stress-buffering and can reduce the impact of negative events or disappointment. Being unrelentingly optimistic about the future helps you to recognize that you are adaptable and capable, enabling you to reassure yourself that you will get through a tough time. Having a powerful hope that you will adapt also provides a limitlessly positive version of the future. 
Those who are hopeful and optimistic can make excuses for negative outcomes, while pessimists may become resentful or negatively preoccupied. Hope. He says your faith and your love grow out of your hope, which is kept safe for you in heaven. What does that mean? How does it play itself out? I saw it in two extreme examples this week. Uh, Did any of you see uh, on the news the tragic bus crash in Indianapolis? A youth group uh, from a church, gone to a camp, had a great camp, coming back, bus apparently loses its brakes, crashes, three people actually four, are, are killed. One is uh, a youth uh, sponsor. Uh, the other uh, are, are a youth pastor and his wife. She's nine months pregnant and their, their uh, unborn child. Okay? Youth pastor is the son of the pastor in that situation. Well, when I saw that, I, I mean, I was, you know, drawn to it, felt bad about it, and then when I heard the circumstances, it felt very, very close to home. And I thought, how, how can a father, a pastor, what's he going to say? How do you deal with something like that? Here's what he said. There's no way you can understand this tragedy other than I know that I will see them again. I know. Faith, love, which is birthed out of hope, which is kept safe through Jesus Christ in heaven. Back to her article, she says, if you have a positive view of tomorrow, it will impact today. Will it take all the pain away? No, 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 no. Uh, But I don't see how you could live through a situation like that without hope, without hope. So let, let let me give you a closer one. Lori was a member of our church, and she died two weeks ago Tuesday. She was 36 years old. She had kids who were seven and five. She had cancer. She moved here one year ago uh, with absolutely no background in faith. She was not raised in faith. She had not pursued uh, her faith. She came here and somebody invited her to church here at Seacoast. And she had a life-transforming relationship, experience of God's grace changed her life. And she became a Christ follower. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago in the ocean, she was baptized. I think we have a picture of that. I was out there that day. I did not know her. I did not know this story. But she was baptized just a few weeks ago at the ocean. Um, Her husband, John, had been wearing this bracelet, pink bracelet, for 27 months. It says hope, faith, strength, courage. You've seen them. And he'd been praying for 27 months for healing for her. Last Saturday night, he was in church. He's watching today with family in another state. Last Saturday night, he was in church here at the Long Point campus. And during the response time where we just respond to God, he felt like that God was nudging him to go to the cross. So he took the bracelet. He felt like God was saying, you can nail it to the cross because your prayer has been answered. So he took it to this cross right over here. 
and he nailed it to the cross. Somebody told me a little bit later about the story. We talked to him about it. And he said, I know I'm going to see her again. That's hope. See, when we pray for people, and we pray for people every week here, we have teams that pray and anoint with oil, and we believe for healing. And people are healed in one of three ways. And we pray until one of these three things happen. Sometimes there is what we call a miraculous healing, and we've had testimonies of those with people who have been healed. Sometimes we die. And when we do, because of our faith in Jesus, we believe that we're healed. We go to be with him. Or the third circumstance would be that Jesus would come back, and he's coming back someday. And when he does, the Bible says that he's going to bring those who have died in him, who have been healed in him, with him. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, it says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. We believe that Jesus died, was buried, he rose again, declaring that he was God. He left the Holy Spirit with you and I to transform our lives, that we become the church, that we become a reflection of who he is. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and don't ever forget about it. Because when you believe that he has gone ahead, he's preparing a place and someday he's coming back. And when I die, I'm going to go with him. Or if I'm here when he returns, he's going to bring back the people that I love to be with him. When I have that hope and when I live every day with that hope, it changes how I act today. Because I can today walk in love, and today I can walk in faith. Doesn't guarantee bad circumstances won't come. This is earth. This is not heaven. But if I believe in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together, that God takes even the bad things and works them together for my good, then I can say with Paul later in that scripture, if God be for me, who can be against me? So if Paul were writing this to us, What would he hear? Church, what would he hear? Would he hear about our faith, that we were confident because of Jesus, that we looked at circumstances differently because of Jesus? Or would we be discouraged because we're believing something else? What would he hear about our love? Would he hear that Seacoast is loving our communities, loving the difficult people around us? Or would he hear that we're like everybody else and loving when it is convenient? What would he hear of our hope? We have a great attitude today because it's based on our hope for tomorrow. Or would we be buried by circumstance and at times bitter at our lot in life? So let's go back to that first question. Have you ever known somebody who was a poor reflection of who Jesus is? Let's personalize it. What kind of a reflection am I? And here's the good news. If the reflection isn't real good, you can get a new start. Today could be the beginning of you 2.0 or 3.0 or 55.0. Doesn't matter to God. His grace is sufficient for everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your kingdom. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for how... You loved the world so much that you gave Jesus, not to condemn, 
but to redeem and to restore. God, thank you for my part and each of our parts in the redemption story. Thank you that your gospel is continuing to be a blessing everywhere it goes. Now, God, I just pray that you would do your transformation work in each of us. Some of us are at the beginning. Some of us are in process. All of us are. God, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.